This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Monday, November 15th, 2021. I'm Caleb Brown. Supply chain disruptions have many causes. The solutions are similarly manifold. Cato's Colin Grabo details how a failure to automate ports, bad waterborne commerce policies, and other rules within federal control have contributed to the slow and expensive movement of goods. You ordered a couch a while ago. When did you order this couch? I ordered this couch in September. September. Here we are in November talking. And when do you expect your couch to arrive? April. Hopefully. Uh, But I also recently ordered some beds that were supposed to arrive uh, last month, and they still have yet to arrive. So who knows? I think April is the best case scenario. (laughs) Okay. So uh, whose fault is that? I mean, if you had to to nail down the either the systems or the viruses or the uh, policies or the public officials in office, uh, or recently in office, um, who's to blame? I think there's a lot of blame to go around. Uh, I think that Americans have uh, if they've suffered through the COVID pandemic lockdown, and a lot of them took that opportunity to uh, uh, take money that otherwise would have gone for things like uh, dining out, and they decided to upgrade their home environments. A lot of people also decided to upgrade to larger homes and decided to furnish those homes. And so we had this spike in demand. At the same time, uh, we faced bottlenecks uh, both uh, overseas where a lot of these goods are being produced. Um, We had uh, factories that were shut down or could not operate at full capacity due to COVID. And then also here in the United States, uh, we've had our ports not operate at peak efficiency. And and then finally, we're at a point now where they're just completely overwhelmed and with uh, knock-on effects throughout our transportation system, which uh, brings us to where we are today. All right. So where have the bottlenecks been with respect to policy specifically? <laughs> I think that we're in many ways uh, kind of paying the piper for uh, policies that have been in place for a long time. Um, just start with our ports, for example. I think a lot of Americans are just realizing today that our ports do not operate 24-7, uh, as they do in other countries, as in Asia, as in Europe. Uh, and we have a supply chain system that's kind of oriented around that. Uh, consequently, the, the, the warehouses near the ports, they don't operate 24-7. And we don't have a system that operates at optimal or peak efficiency. Um, so we have a system, I think, that wasn't optimal, and it's facing this uh, shock in demand, and it's it's overwhelmed. Um, you, it's been aggravated by some some added bad policy, uh, such as um, the lack of automation in our ports, and also U.S. tariff policy, for example, uh, that uh, has placed a huge, I uh, believe, in excess of two hundred percent tariff on. Uh, truck chassis. Well, it turns out you need these chassis to move goods from the port to warehouses and elsewhere where they're needed. So a lot of bad policy uh, has come together to produce, uh, to contribute at least significantly to to the current situation we find ourselves in. And and I wonder the degree to which if you're trying to find a, an original sin here uh, that drove a lot of these other policy decisions or at least made them easier, I wonder if the Jones Act wouldn't, didn't in some way uh, subsidize the decision to not automate ports uh, to the degree that uh, other ports around the world are are so much more advanced than ours. Well, 
what's interesting about the United States is basically when it comes to waterborne commerce, a lot of it is the vast majority of it is international. It's stuff, it's imports and exports. Uh, in terms of domestic waterborne transport, that accounts for very little of of uh, U.S. transportation. I think measured by uh, ton 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 miles, uh, U.S. shipping accounts for something like two percent of all freight moved. If you add in barges, we're up to six percent. You know, you compare that to other countries or other areas, such as the European Union, uh, you're in excess of 30%. Uh, granted, there are geographical differences and other factors that come into play, but I still think there's a substantial uh, missed opportunity there. So I would think in a post-Jones Act world, we'd see a couple things happen. Uh, one is that we would see more goods moved by by water throughout the United States. Um, so instead of relying heavily on truck and rail to speed goods to their final destination, there would be greater use of waterborne transportation that would ease some of the pressure on our trucking and rail systems. And I also think that if we did make greater use of waterborne transport, then there would be more pressure, uh, more groups interested in having an efficient uh, port system, and there might be uh, a greater interest in, in fixing some of these uh, ills that we've discovered lately. So uh, Congress has shown very little interest aside from a couple of pieces of legislation, which are, are fairly recent in, in their in being offered for the first time ever. Uh, so Congress has shown little interest in, in changing this. Is there anything that Joe Biden could do to say, hey, we're now going to unilaterally allow this kind of shipping in the United States, even temporarily? to alleviate these uh, these supply chain issues that we're having. In terms of the Jones Act, uh, presidential authority to waive the Jones Act is pretty circumscribed. It can only be done for reasons of national security. Um, that's a bit ambiguous as to what constitutes national security, but perhaps more importantly, the duration for these for any waiver issued by the president is pretty limited. I believe it's between 10 to 14 days, something uh, like that, and can be extended, uh, I, I believe, uh, for, for an additional week or two. Um, so that's certainly no long-term solution to, to what's facing us now. Um, I'll note that the CEO of Flexport, which is a freight forwarding firm, uh, noted that one possible solution to alleviating the pressure on the ports in Los Angeles and Long Beach would be to have ships uh, load some of the containers because the, the port has excess uh, containers. It's hard uh, to, to get them out. They're too crowded, essentially. Take some of those containers and move them elsewhere along the, the West Coast. Well, we we lack a what's called a uh, short sea shipping network in in this country. Um, you know ships that just operate along the coasts um, because of the Jones Act. So the the our ability to uh, relieve pressure on those ports and move containers elsewhere to other ports on the west coast that are perhaps not as heavily burdened is is severely restricted by this law. So maybe there's potential for you know a short waiver to, to help with something like that. Uh, that said, let's keep in mind that Joe Biden, uh, as well as uh, Secretary of uh, Transportation Pete Buttigieg are uh, on record as supporting the Jones Act. Uh, so whether they would actually be willing to uh, move forward with uh, uh, an action like that, I, I'm fairly skeptical. I also saw a quote from the Congressional Research Service. They they had a, a report like 10 years ago that made a really good point that said that even though you know foreign ships they cannot transport uh, goods from one U.S. port to another, 
what foreign ships do do is they will visit multiple U.S. ports. Typically, they'll go to one U.S. port, drop off the majority of their load, and they'll go to other U.S. ports and pick up goods destined for abroad. And the CRS described this as essentially a, a conveyor belt. And this is a conveyor belt that Americans cannot take advantage of uh, because of the Jones Act. So that's an opportunity, again, to to move goods between uh, U.S. cities um, that uh, Americans can't use because of, because of this law. You know, in the 1970s, I believe we altered how we regulate interstate uh, trucking and shipping via rail in the United States. Uh, prior to the the repeal under the Carter administration, we had a whole lot of uh, rail traffic that was just a bunch of empty cargo containers moving from one place to another. And the, the Carter administration, along with Congress, said – Let's stop doing that. That seems fairly ridiculous. And yet it seems like the United States effectively does the same thing with respect to ships that stop at our ports that are foreign flagged vessels. Yeah, I think that uh, the United States, we did a lot of transportation deregulation back in the late 70s, early 80s, again, primarily with U.S. rail and and trucking industries. Uh, Lots of new efficiencies were realized. And yet, uh, I, I think it's it's worth pointing out that our when it comes to water, we still have a very regulated uh, system with uh, a lack of competition. And I think there's substantial scope for for new efficiency gains. Um, lots of opportunity costs there. Colin Grabo is a policy analyst at the Cato Institute's Herbert A. Stiefel Center for Trade Policy Studies. Subscribe to and rate the Cato Daily Podcast pretty much anywhere. And follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast. 